We'll be together in Daniel chapter 3, so if you would open your Bible there with me. Uh, If you are new with us today, my name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here and have the privilege this morning of uh, opening the Scriptures with you. A couple weeks ago, we started in the book of Daniel. Daniel is in the Old Testament, and it was uh, written at least uh, 2,500 years ago to give us an ongoing message about uh, God and His kingdom. We will be in chapter 3, and if you grabbed one of those Bibles in the back, you can turn in those blue Bibles to page 430, page 430. Uh, throughout history, numerous governmental leaders have claimed divinity, while others have at least sought to harness religious symbols to achieve political ends. I thought you were coming for me, Matt. Albania, Russia, China, and Cambodia are just a few recent examples of countries where leaders have sought to use religion for their own political ends. When rulers get it in their heads that they can exert control over people even through religious means, people are bound to suffer. And that's what happened in the book of Daniel in chapter 3. Read with me starting in verse 1, would you? Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is a most bizarre scene, is it not? The king commissioned a huge statue to be built outside the city of Babylon, standing 90 feet tall, yet only 9 feet wide. This golden image towered awkwardly into the sky. Now, we're not told exactly what the statue was a statue of, but it's clear, though, that this gigantic object represented King Nebuchadnezzar. Not only Nebuchadnezzar, but his kingdom, his will, his splendor, his might, his glory, his gods. By virtue of the king's decree, whenever that music came on, all people were told to bow down. And any failure to do so would result in immediate 
execution. Now, there's a lot happening in this first paragraph of Daniel 3, but frankly, I think it's easy to miss because the repetitiveness of the paragraph makes it rather boring and it's easy to tune out. So let's make a few observations. First, notice that this image was clearly designed to inspire awe from the, from the material it was constructed with. Imagine the amount of gold that took to its placement in a field where it ominously reached up into the sky with nothing else around it. Incidentally, if you remember back to Genesis chapter 11, where the Tower of Babel was built in a field, that would have been very close to this geographically. This is in some ways another Babel. From the elaborate dedication of this statue to the demand to physically bow down before it, everything about this scene was set to cause people to give absolute respect and submission to Nebuchadnezzar through the statue. Second, notice that the narrator of the story, as he describes the dedication scene, the ceremony, he lists all the people who were there in verse 2, only to turn around and list them all again in verse 3. The same thing is done with the instruments used in chapter four, verse 4 and then also again in verse 7. Add to this the language that all people's nations and languages are commanded to bow, and the point becomes evident. Nebuchadnezzar was seeking to unify his vast empire by means of this statue. The point was, rally around me. I will unify the entire world. Now third and most important, notice in the paragraph the almost comical repetition of the word set up. By the end of it, aren't you ready to say shut up? It's used six times in only seven verses. And if you read on in the rest of the passage, In the next three paragraphs, the word is used at least once in each of them. In every case, the subject is the same. Nebuchadnezzar did this. He is the man. Now, why does this matter, you might ask? Well, back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And God gave Daniel the dream and the interpretation of that dream. If you were here with us last week, you may remember the dream was about a statue made of four different kinds of metal. And the top part of the statue, the head, was made of gold, and it represented Nebuchadnezzar. Silver, bronze, and iron were then used to represent the subsequent dominant powers that would come over the world until Jesus came in the first century. When God told Daniel what the dream meant, Daniel in chapter 2 erupted in a prayer of praise. And one of the things Daniel prayed was this, God removes kings and God sets up kings. While chapter 2 ends with Nebuchadnezzar praising God, scholars tell us that although we've just crossed from chapter 2 to 3, many years have passed. Most say it was 
probably nine years between the end of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3. Somewhere along the way in those nine years, Nebuchadnezzar decided, I'm not content with merely being the head. I want to be the whole thing. Forget bronze and silver and iron. My kingdom will last forever. I am a god. You see, chapter 3 is Nebuchadnezzar's rejection and repudiation of chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar now had come to believe that he deserved praise for an eternal kingdom that he would set up. And at least in the opening scene, he gets it. There is no one in the opening paragraph that fails to bow. Like cattle headed to a slaughter, they all just move ahead. That was not in my notes, by the way. But it wasn't quite everyone. If we read on into the next paragraph, then you'll find some tattletales came into the scene. They were snitches, Babylonian astrologers, who probably, driven by racial prejudice, they didn't like the fact that Jews were in positions higher than them or equal to them, they said that there are three Jews who refuse to bow down and worship. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, everybody wants to know, where's Daniel? The only thing we can say is we don't know. He's just not listed. Maybe he had a bad burrito the night before, so he didn't make it to the celebration. But either way, these men tell the king those three won't bow down. How would Nebuchadnezzar respond? Well, verse 13 tells us. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these three men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the tragon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? The king was kind enough to give another chance, but... The punishment, we're told, would be fixed and immovable. Bow in praise or burn in pain. Those were the only two choices. Their response comes next, verse 13, no, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hands, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Those words are among the most courageous, 
ever spoken. Humanly speaking, Nebuchadnezzar at this point in time was literally the most powerful person alive. The whole might of the world's superpower was at his fingertips. And that might was aimed directly at these three nobodies. And yet they did not hesitate for a moment to decide that they would obey God rather than man. They could have thought, well, let's huddle up and we could bow with our bodies but stand in our hearts. The king will never know the difference. They could have said, well, let's just do it because if we don't, who will be a witness of the one true God? We'll bend today so that we can stand tomorrow. There's all kinds of excuses they could have come up with, but they didn't. A king who thought of himself as above all would not be accustomed to the kind of response he got. But he had demanded something these three simply could not do. Worst of all is what we find at the end of verse 15. This is a brazen mock against God. In Nebuchadnezzar's mind, no God exists who could rescue those three. His might was powerful beyond even the gods. No one would refuse his command. Seems like at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is asserting an almost uh, ultra-divine power for himself. Nevertheless, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew their God did in fact have the power to rescue them. He is able, living in exile every day, surrounded by people who rejected the one true God. What got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up in the morning was this singular truth. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. That's what ought to get us up in the morning too. Hansley reminded us that last week we talked about the fact that what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And it's clear that these three had spent their lives cultivating right thoughts about God. And because they'd prepared yesterday and the day before that and the day before that, then when this moment came, they were ready. They knew what was true about God. They knew of His power. Friend, you don't know what challenges today will bring let alone tomorrow. You must prepare your mind today for what you will face. They were confident in God's power. But notice carefully what they say, because that confidence in God's power did not equal an assumption about God's providence. Sometimes, church, in other words, God delivers us from the furnace. Sometimes He rescues us out of and fixes the opposition that we face. But other times, 
In the mystery of God's perfect will, God does not do that which He is able to do. What would happen on the plains of Babylon that day? Many of us already know the story. But think about being those three. They didn't know. They couldn't have known what God would do. But they were certain of what they would not do. They would not bow. And friend, you and I must not bow to the gods of our age. Now, let's be candid. The chances that one of us would ever be in a situation where we're living under a totalitarian regime, under a narcissistic king, commanding worship of a 90-foot gold statue out in the field. The chances of that are not very high. Nevertheless, I would suggest we face some situations not at all dissimilar on the regular. This king demanded that everyone give their allegiance to the statue and thereby to him. To bow before that statue was to bow before Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. And while you won't see any 90-foot gold statues around the valley this week, there will be opportunities that you face every day to give higher allegiance to something or someone other than God. When the world demands that you participate actively in something you know God forbids. When society at large demands you approve of what God says is shameful. When a professor demands a truth you hold dear be rejected and demeans it and requires you do the same if you want to get through the class. These are the statues of our day. And not only that, the statues out there, we have a tendency to direct and erect them in our own hearts. Anyone and anything can be set up by us to be the chief object of our worship. When these moments come in the coming week, Will you conform or will you refuse? Brothers and sisters, because this world is not our home, because our citizenship is already in heaven, we are ever bit as much in Babylon as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. Our challenge many days is to recognize that that's true. Because we've simply not ever known any different. And yet, it's not more complicated than this. Would you consider what you would put in this blank? I will follow God unless. Is there anything that would complete that statement for you? If anything goes in that blank, that thing or person or desire or object or reputation, that is a Nebuchadnezzar's statue. 
Christian, this morning, may we be reminded that the God we've sung to is the only God worthy of worship. He's the only God that is a God. Everything else is idolatry. Whatever the cost, we must obey God rather than man. If there's anything that goes in that blank for you, I want to encourage you right now, Christian, that you would tune me out for a few minutes and you would do business with God. You would confess that as sin and you would decide that it will be different. And not only that, you would decide in your mind another brother or sister in Christ who you will go and tell. I have been worshiping this and would you walk with me that I might not do it again? But don't stay in that posture long. Repentance is a, a doorway we walk through. It's not the room that we continue to live in, in the sense of continuing to confess the same sin over and over and over. No, when, when we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. And so, if the faithfulness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego continually reminds you of your own unfaithfulness, if the thoughts flooding your mind as I'm speaking with you this morning are only of all the things that go in that list and the ways that you have failed, don't look long at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's not the pathway to obedience. That doesn't produce change. Instead, look to Jesus. Because while those three faced the courageous moment in which they stood up against the possibility of death, Jesus was courageous in the face of certain death. And the gospel isn't do like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego if you really love God. No, it is, the gospel is we are the Nebuchadnezzars who have set up idols. And yet there is a God who forgives. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were heroic on this day, but some other day they failed. But Jesus never did. And so look to Christ and His own faithfulness. That faithfulness has been given to you. God looks at you and sees that faithfulness. That's the way to act like them in the future. Do you hear the difference? Now, what happened to these three courageous Jews? Well, look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than it was usually heated. Now, there, wasn't, there wasn't a digital dial on the side, and he turned it up. That just means seven stands for perfection. He means I, I, he heated it as hot as it could possibly go, like a tempe summer. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery furnace. 
Then these three men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flames of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Furnaces or kilns were used throughout this part of the ancient world for firing bricks and refining metals. And sometimes they were huge. So while this story seems odd to us, it certainly would not have been odd at all to them. These kinds of devices were common. Bound with all their clothes still on, the three were tossed into the fiery furnace. Now don't miss the scene if you know the story. There are probably thousands of people there who have all bowed except these three. The only three who did the right thing got the worst possible treatment. Christian, if you stand firm, even if you do the right thing, it just may be that you might face the fire of judgment, judgment you don't deserve. Judgment that is not, in fact, right. Many of us have felt the second-degree burns of lost relationships. People who no longer want anything to do with you because of what you believe. Others of us have felt the third-degree burns of family members who've rejected us because they've rejected God. Understand that this is normal. It's not unusual. Christians and churches will face opposition for biblical belief. Much later in our Bibles, in the book of Peter, 1 Peter, the apostle wrote, probably thinking back on this event, he wrote that we should not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Brother, sister, don't be surprised when you face hardship precisely because of your faith. Now, it seems certain that these three would soon be incinerated. But the way these furnaces were built, they were often put on the side of a mountain or a hill of some kind, and there was a giant flue at the top. That's how you'd heat it up is to close it. And when they opened the top and threw the three down in, there was so much fire that it killed them. And Nebuchadnezzar in his horrendous, sadistic rage was down below looking through the door where he saw something he never could have imagined. Verse 24 describes it. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four, four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. 
And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar was stunned and absolutely baffled. Three men were thrown in the fire, but somehow a fourth appeared. Incidentally, this is the origin of the phrase, that party was fire. As an astonished king looked into the kiln, he saw four unbound, unhurt, and walking around. Now, in the next paragraph, the king tells them to come out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out. They all emerge unscathed. The text gives us these kinds of details. Not even their hair was singed, nor did they stink. It's a miracle. Now, the question everybody wants to ask at this point is, who is the fourth figure in the fire? Some Christians believe it was Jesus, sort of a, a pre-incarnation incarnation. Maybe it's possible, but it's far more likely that this was an angel sent by God. But either way, I would submit to you that it doesn't really matter. That the point is that God rescued them. That whoever that being was, he was God's emissary sent to mediate God's presence to his faithful people. Now, details in narratives are extremely important. The details often point us to some of the most precious lessons in the story. And if we look at the detail here, Notice that there's no indication in the story itself about the men being rescued from the fire. It's not the language it uses. It uses instead the phrase that something was happening in the midst of the fire. Brothers and sisters, God so often lets us go into trial. He meets with us in the furnace. He very often does not keep us from it, but rather He gives us His presence within it. God with us in the fire is the most precious gift, even better than being delivered from it. Beloved, if you've experienced hardship because of your faith, then lift your head, look around. There is a fourth with you. God is with you. He may resolve the issue and walk you out of the furnace to live more days without that particular hardship. Or he may allow that circumstance to continue for the rest of your life. But either way, don't miss the miracle. God is with you. Now, on this particular occasion, God chose to deliver these three Jews out of the burning, fiery furnace. And I think it's worth asking why. Why in this particular occasion did God, chose, did God choose to rescue them in such a miraculous way? 
What was so special about this moment that it required that? There are many more times, statistically speaking, both within the Bible and without, where the martyr doesn't get rescued. So why here? Why now? Well, that gets us down to the very heart of this story, what it's for. Look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I will make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid to ruin. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Friend, early, earlier in the sermon, remember, toward the start of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar had said, there is no God able in a mocking, condescending, arrogant self-exaltation. He claimed a divine power for himself greater than all the other gods. Nebuchadnezzar believed his authority was ultimate and his kingdom eternal. And at this particular moment, he had gathered representatives of the entire known world commanding them to worship Him. All eyes were on that statue. All eyes were being drawn to idolatry. And Nebuchadnezzar's claim that he was the most powerful was at stake. Daniel chapter 3, you see, is not mainly about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's about God. It, it is a divine self-vindication. It's about the one who really is without rival. If we could put it in a sentence, it might be this. God alone is able to deliver His faithful children out of the fiery furnace. God can do that. The other gods of the Babylonians weren't gods at all. The, the image set up by Nebuchadnezzar, as grand as it was, was just a statue. But the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that God can do whatever He wants. He is able. And He, not Nebuchadnezzar, will have a global, unending, forever kingdom for Himself. And that God loves to rescue His people. Friends, the story of history is His story of delivering His faithful children. If you know your Bible, think back to the most significant event of deliverance that occurred prior to this one. The nation of Israel had been in Egypt for hundreds of years. 
enslaved to another person who claimed some kind of divine status. And as God sent an angel to rescue his people out of Egypt, Moses would later write, looking back on that event, thinking of Egypt, in Deuteronomy 4, he would call Egypt a iron furnace. God rescued them out of that one too. Over and over and over again, your Old Testament is the story of God's people looking like they won't survive, but then they actually do. Because despite their sin, God preserved a faithful few. The rescue out of Egypt was a furnace. Later, we're told the rescue out of Babylon was also a furnace. But both of these were merely signposts pointing ahead to an even more important and better deliverance. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3 is just one of many events foreshadowing the supreme rescue. Jesus, when he came in the first century, God himself in the flesh, revealing fully and finally who God is. Jesus picked up this language from the book of Daniel of a fiery furnace to describe what will happen at the end of time to all those who refuse to heed God's word. All those who spend their life bowing to false gods. It's a hard word, but it's an important one. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says this, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As horrible as the fiery furnace in Babylon was, there is an eternal furnace, a real destination for all who reject God, called hell. And while those who trust Jesus Christ as the one who lived and died and rose again, will be spared the horrors of an unending furnace. All who refuse, who refuse the grace and mercy and love of God offered in Jesus Christ, will meet that awful future. And what makes it so awful is there won't be a fourth Friend, every person you ever meet will either have their account settled by Christ's death and resurrection, or they will meet it in an unending way in this furnace. Non-Christian, if you recognize this morning that you have been elevating people and possessions and experiences, and accolades, and your reputation, the shape of your body, a relationship you desire, one you can't imagine living without, 
if you have set up anything to be the chief object of your affection and your reason for living, then you are bowing before that thing, that person, that opportunity. That's what idolatry is. There doesn't have to be a 90-foot statue in order to prostrate yourself before a false god. If you recognize this morning that you have been doing that and you can't stop, then welcome to the club. Every single one of us are members. We've all been there. A Christian, you see, is not someone who hasn't done that. No, they're people who've come to recognize that is the default position of my heart and I'm pretty good at it. And yet God has rescued me out of that furnace. Amen? Believe in Jesus Christ. Acknowledge this sin. Put your trust and faith and confidence in Him. And you too will be rescued. This is the great message of the Bible. God is ready and able and willing and powerful enough to deliver even you. And brothers and sisters, those who make up Church on Mill, while, while we live in exile, let us begin to think more about how do we help each other never bow down to the idols of this world again? Haven't we done it enough? Haven't we found it unsatisfactory? By looking together to Jesus, let us not serve gods that aren't gods, because God alone has already rescued us out of the furnace. Decide today, Christian, that you will refuse to bow to people and their demands for conformity. So what? if we stand alone. Our sovereign God is able to deliver us. And we know in the end that that is exactly what He will do. It may not feel like it, but we live in exile. And if we would be faithful to God, we will need each other. May we lean on one another even as Collectively, we lean on Christ. Now, I want to put this right down where the rubber meets the road. Currently in the United States, we are commanded to bow before the God of personal autonomy. Any failure to do so will result in immediate condemnation. The furnace is already heated as high as it'll go. This is what cancel culture is all about. It is its point. Currently, the frontline issues in this religion of personal autonomy all have to do with our bodies. Women, you are told it's your right to end your pregnancy with murder instead of with birth. And any attempt to say otherwise 
is demanded with cancel. And more recently, and far more vehemently, we are being evangelized to believe that sex and gender are somehow unrelated. That our autonomy means we can choose to be a man or a woman regardless of our parts. And that everyone must bow to any and every demand of the LGBTQ agenda. Now let me be clear. If you are a Christian struggling with same-sex attraction, and we have several faithful brothers and sisters that this is a consistent temptation, understand I'm not talking to you. You are some of our heroes who are resisting a sin that everything around you tells you to enjoy and celebrate. So I'm not speaking to you. Talking about the pressure of the world upon the church. A pressure that says even raising the question if it's wise for a grade schooler to have their pronouns changed and to be put on hormone replacement therapy. To say even that will land you square in the scope of cancel culture's firing squad. Friend, if you don't see this, you're not paying attention. It is everywhere around us. Trying to demand the Western world stop this destructive idol worship is no longer possible. Frankly, I fear that the American church in general is putting its efforts in the wrong place. You see, that ship has sailed. Christians are not going to convince non-Christians that that narrative in mass is not true. Nor will we actually persuade anyone if all that we're doing is yelling and complaining and demeaning. Notice in the story that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't pictured standing up condemning the masses for worshiping the idol. No, they understood we can't change what the masses around us are doing but we will not join. That's what the church needs to do. We can kindly, lovingly, graciously choose not to conform. We can display a glorious commitment to heterosexual marriage in ways that put the gospel on display and show that it's better. We can refuse to follow our every sexual urge as though just because I want something, that means it's right. We can resist the demand to bow to whatever next letter gets added to the list. We can kindly love all people. Build relationships, share the gospel without celebrating lifestyles that pave the way to a furnace that will never 
be extinguished. We can do this. The question is, will we? That remains to be seen. Father, we pray that you'd come to our aid, that you would help us to want you to be seen and known and worshipped and savored and enjoyed and obeyed as the God that you are, because you alone are the God who can rescue us out of the fiery furnace. We pray for non-Christians today to come to see you and love you. And we pray as Christians we would be much more reflective about our thoughts about you. And that you'd help us to stop being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we, not by our own faithfulness, but by the faithfulness of your Son, would stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego willing to take whatever the world brings that we might not bow the knee to gods that aren't gods. Working this out is costly and difficult and confusing, and so we need great wisdom. Please bring us more and more people who would help us walk faithfully together and help us lean into the wisdom that each of us need, that we draw from one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.